Welcome to DevOps Sauna. I am Lauri and I am the Chief Marketing Officer of Epicode. One of our people, Christian Clausen from Aarhus, Denmark, published a book called Five Lines of Code. In his book, he teaches working developers the shortcuts to quality code. The book introduces Christian's unique approach to refactoring that's focused on concrete rules. I won't spill all the secrets of the book here, so let's tune in and listen Christian tell about refactoring himself. Hey Christian, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing excellently. How has your day been so far? There's a little bit of allergies today, so um, it's it's dragging me down a bit. Ah, yeah, it's the pollen. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Um, when I was when I was young, I was allergic to the birch, which happened in July. So, yeah. but that was it was a different time. Thank you for taking the time um, today. I'm happy to to have a discussion with you about the book you authored, Five Lines of Code. Thank you for having me. Now, um, for the audience that probably don't know you personally, uh, why don't we start by giving you a floor to introduce yourself? Just tell a little bit about yourself, about your professional background, and of course, something that that you'd like to tell yourself about uh, yourself, unprofessionally or non-professionally, whatever you want to say. So. Um... My name is Christian. I am a technical agile coach uh, during the day where I go and help teams do software better, but focusing on the technical practices like mob programming and testing and stuff. I'm trained as uh, in software quality and doing functional programming and doing you know, formal proofs and um, guaranteeing that code is uh, the highest possible quality. And that has sort of been my focus always to do high quality software. In my spare time I like to climb and, you know, just write books apparently. Mm, climbing. Uh there was a recent opening of a bouldering center near to where, where I live and it's a it's an interesting hobby and I should say that even though I do a tra- a trail running and I consider myself be in a good condition, I am humbled by the challenges that uh, as small as four meters of wall can give to somebody. It's very going to, it's amazing. Oh, it is indeed. Um, we are going to talk about your your book today, Five Lines of Code, and more specifically what's in the book and what motivated you to write that uh, and uh, and all of that. Um, let me start by by asking a question that is not answered in in the book is is why does the book exist? Like what? What was the backstory for the for you to start to write it? I've always liked uh, writing, and I've always liked books. I collect as many technical books as I can, and I try to read as much as I can, uh, especially technical stuff. And um, it's just it's a wonderful thing sitting down with a book and then just uh, you know going on a journey with the author. And so I've started countless books uh, of things I found interesting. Uh, all through my life, but um, this was the first time I had an idea where it was like I started writing it, and then I took it out uh, after a year, and I wrote, uh, I read what I've written, and it was just, it was an epiphany to myself. I was being like, did I think this? Did like this is super useful? These are these are great ideas, and after I've done that a, a couple of times, I was like, well, maybe I'm not the only thing that would find this useful. Maybe this can help someone else, and so I contacted Manning. Hmm. 
Yeah, books uh, have two dimensions. One is what's in the book, and then one is the book itself. And I remember one uh, neuroscientist who said that when people read books, they sort of form a mental model of the book, which is an amalgamation of the physical object and the contents in the book. And that's why why he advised that whenever you are reading non-fiction, then you should be reading it in pretty... Uh, printed format because the the fact that you're hand holding a book into hand and turning the pages that will uh, sort of mash up with what's in the book and then you will easily remember later okay i need to go back and look that stuff at it was probably one third down the book on the top right after the picture on the left hand side and it, it's something that that um, as he argued you cannot get from printed books by understand or from from digital books by understand that your book is available both digitally and in print because i have read that book uh, a part of it digitally it will be available in print once it's completely done currently it's still being written so it's only only digital but i completely agree i also have that feeling where i know sort of the spatial dimension really adds to a book and to you know the repeatability but for my book, though, I will say the most valuable thing you can do with it is doing following along yourself, right? Typing on a keyboard, doing the exercises, or following the example. Because it is a practical book, and it's practical skills, so there is no substitute to having done it with your own hands. Hmm. Yeah. So um, when you then... I think it's a good bridge to our our second topic, which is how to apply then the topic, which is refactoring, in the daily development. So, so what what does daily uh, so what does uh, refactoring matter in in daily development? Yeah, that's a great question. It's it's a thing that I discuss with teams uh, a lot when I go out and talk to them about refactoring and about how they can become more efficient. Because, as it turns out, not doing refactoring is very detrimental to to like code if you keep adding couplings you keep adding a lot of stuff if you never take time to tidy it up it'll just keep dragging you down you're running with this huge um, backlog of things that are just messy and it can just it can ruin a lot of things so it's important that people actually incorporate refactoring into their daily work and let it become part of you know solving a task not not closing a ticket before refactoring is done for instance is uh, is something that I that I try to tell people. Um, in the book, I describe like a six-step model for uh, develop for delivering work, and so it's whenever you get some work ticket or something, you start by doing a spike where you just try to figure out what am I going to build, like what what does this need to do even? Is it possible? Like just do something and then throw it away afterwards. What, use that knowledge that you then gain from the spike to write down a specification. What am I going to build? And what is the acceptance criteria, right? What is, when is it good enough? This would usually take the form of an automated test. And then uh, you develop the code uh, using some form of testing maybe. And then finally you test it to the specification, make sure it's up to the standard that you wanted. Then you do the refactoring to make sure that you're not delivering any anything bad into the code base that's going to be like bad for the rest of the team. And then finally, there should be some process for delivering the code, like pushing it to master or integrating it into a branch or something. Cool, very rigorous process. And I and I can imagine, I can, or let's say, I can only imagine what kind of collaboration it's between publisher and the writer to get the book out the door. As a matter of fact, I remember one, uh, 
one speech where the where the writer and the author of the book said that publishers are really good at two things. One is designing the cover, and the other thing is giving a book a name. And your your book has a very interesting name, Five Lights of God. I don't know who came up with that, but there. As I was uh, as I was sort of acquainting myself with the book, I discovered that it's not only a name of the book, but it is actually it is not figurative five lines of God, but it is it is uh, literally five lines of God. So tell us about how did you or who came up with this these rules and and uh, why why that is so important. So um, just a note on the publishing. I mean, I love working with Manning. They've been super great. I don't feel like they've. Uh, they've uh, helped me back in any way or like made me do anything. It's all my ideas and it, they just support me. Uh, and it's been great. Uh, I came up with the title also, and it is inspired of course, by the first rule. That's the sort of the fundamental rule of the book. The whole of part one of the book is going over one example really thoroughly. And it's built to be like this realistic sized program. Like it's not a small, trivial, okay, anyone could do that. It doesn't work on my code base. It's it's a big example. It's a few hundred lines of TypeScript. And then we go over how to transform those into something that's uh, a lot more um, scalable, I would say, a lot more flexible. And so in that, the first rule we introduce is a method should not be any longer than five lines of code. And uh, the five lines, and that's called the five line rule. And we try to do it. That motivates a lot of the other rules, trying to get down to that limit. Because for methods that are a lot of um, just single statement, it's pretty easy. You can just extract method. But once it gets more complicated, you might have an if with more cases than that, or you might have switches or something. It's it's not easy to see how to actually break that down to less than five lines. So it's it's motivating you to to figure out creative solutions and to do more advanced uh, refactorings. So it sort of guides you through the whole part one of the book. The five in the five lines comes from, um, uh, that is how many lines it takes to do a single pass over the data structure that we're working with, which in this case would be a 2D array, right? Because it's a 2D game. So it takes five lines to go through a 2D array if we were doing a 3D game, it would be six lines of code. If you're mm. doing something that has 26 dimensions, you know, you can do 60, yeah. 26, 27 lines of code, I guess. I understand. Yeah. Very, very intriguing. And I, I believe it's also, let's say, it gives a healthy cognitive challenge for people to try and force themselves to to stay within confined limits whether it is uh, five or six or more but the fact that there is a rule that you have to conform to then sort of forces you to in this case think inside the box yeah and that and that's super important these rules are meant for learning you know they're they're a, they're a learning tool they're not a tool for how to develop perfect software but it does force you to learn the rules. And then once you've learned the rules, you can sort of start breaking them, right? You have to learn to do them to learn to break them and figure out when it's right for you and, and transition to doing code smells, for instance, instead of the rules. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of software development more broadly, um, I have a quote as I was, I was uh, re sort of, I need to confess, I didn't uh, read your book thoroughly, but I, I had an opportunity to acquaint myself for a great deal of it. And there was a, uh, there was a quote, if you already know how to do automatic testing, feel free to use it th- throughout this book. If you don't, 
don't worry. And that was something that I, that stopped me at my tracks in that it's a little bit of a departure from the typical test-driven development that essentially test, the, the purpose of the test-driven development is essentially move part of the technical unit testing work to be parallel with the implementation itself. So, so why does the book or your thoughts behind the book sort of steer away from test-driven development or, or testing in general, perhaps? So the the point of the book is to to uh, give to let refactoring be available to more people than it perhaps has been so far. A, a lot of people I've met in industry are simply not uh, familiar with or practiced in refactoring because they don't have time, because they don't have all of these things. One of the reasons then can also be they don't have a solid foundation in testing. And so if you meet a code base with no tests, uh, people ask, can you not do any refactoring then? And that's also an issue, right? Because you can't do proper testing without refactoring the code to fit testing also. So it's sort of a chicken and egg thing. Um, and so for the co- for the purposes of the book, which is learning refactoring, you don't need testing is my thesis at least. You can You can learn it first and then learn testing at another time separately. And just having the tools and being extra careful, it is not as safe as having testing, of course. But if you've accepted the risk of not having testing during regular development, you'd probably accept it also during refactoring. Both are risky. So it's it's more, I think, I see co- uh, testing more as a property of the quality that you've decided to, ch- to do. It's a tra- strategic decision, really, rather than a mm. technical decision. Yeah. Yeah, understand. Yeah, this this reminds me of some of the recent conversations that I had with uh, with our CTO Marco, who has really really um, nudged me into looking into test driven uh, development. Given that I decided to dip my toes on the on the closure uh, programming and functional programming, being a Perl developer myself in the past, and I can certainly attest to the fact that uh, being a good tester is a different skill than than being a good developer. Uh, maybe maybe that's my personal view and you might disagree with that, but I can certainly see that I have some qualities of being a, a, a software developer myself, but I have practically no qualities of being a tester myself. So what are your thoughts on that? I think many people actually find it harder to do testing properly than to do uh, refactoring, uh, for instance. Like refactoring is... The first time you learn about moving code around and having it be flexible like that, it's amazing. It's blowing your mind and stuff. But once it sinks in, it's like, okay, this just means I can look at code from an abstract point of view and move it around and make it more flexible. And, you know, that's super useful. Even from just doing refactoring a lot on on testing projects that doesn't matter, where you don't need to do testing, that will make you automatically write code in a in a more flexible manner. I mean... Just practicing these things, wax on, wax off, as the Karate Kid uh, mm. sensei would say. I mean, it's, yeah, you just write better code from learning it, and it gives you a different perspective. It's super useful, even not having mentioned testing at all. Yeah, yeah. They, they were speaking of of the, you know, putting it, putting the opinions out there. There were two other uh, places where, where maybe maybe it's a fair to say that you had an unusual position. So one was, there was a comment, if performance is important, it should be handled in a separate phase from refactoring, guided by profiling tools or performance gurus. So so you could say, 
that is also a departure from from some other schools of thinking. Yeah. Um, why, why do you think that way? So it's it's actually it it comes from all the way back from the original refactoring book of Martin Fowler, where he also has this point. He has an example for the first, I think, forty to fifty pages. That's super great, um, and really it, it it changed my life reading that. Um, and so in that he says we're splitting up a loop that goes over in one pass over something to go in two passes over that same thing. And that's and immediately I was like, but you're degrading performance, right? You're doing you're going one pass to two passes. And he argues that the benefits of having clean code and fast development often outweigh the benefits of having fast execution, especially because like 90% of the time, the execution time doesn't really matter or you're not in something that's critical. If you're doing something mm. once or twice, it doesn't matter. If you're doing it every second, of course, it starts to matter, right? And so you need, people cannot, do not have like a natural sort of um, understanding of what the critical paths are or what the hotspots in the code are. And that's why we need profiling tools if we, absolutely need to do refactoring I also th- or performance optimization. I also happen to think that they should be mo- motivated by some external need like a performance test or like uh, an acceptance criteria, something that we can actually look at and say, this is why we're doing performance optimization. And then the profiler can tell us where we need to do the optimization. Mm. Because just doing it because it's fun is not very good for like uh, the team usually yeah yeah i can remember two um occasions from my from my own personal experience one was um one of the very very old project little lamp project linux apache uh, mysql and, and postgre or, or or perl bhp whichever way you want to look at it um you were able to run the whole database in memory because it was so small so of course it's it's uh, it performs very well regardless of how you have built it the other um, um, remembrance is from the times when I was doing a, a Perl um, development about 20 years ago and I I sort of uh, found a very handy use for recursive function and then my my sort of tutor and my senior colleague at that time uh, he he told me away from recursive functions and now this summer I learned that if you were to do any loop uh, processing in closure it's pretty much an imperative to use uh, tail recursion, so recursive function. So you sort of have to learn away from another conventions as you as you adapt different ways. And I could imagine that in refactoring, it's also the case that you might have some old conventions that you have gotten used to, and you have to, while you're learning new tricks, you also have to you know let go of the old habits. Yeah, and not only that. Like so, breaking up a method uh, used to be very slow, right? Having one method means it it's already cached correctly, and you don't need to think about organizing your functions and stuff. But compilers have gotten good at that, right? Better than humans, I would say, mostly. And so, mm. this is also a factor that changes. Like pro uh, programming languages evolve and implement new techniques for optimizing and stuff. Um, I used to always uh, check for evenness by just looking at the last bit. But modern optimi- uh, optimizers don't care if you do the modulo 2. That will be equally fast, right? Because they'll just figure out the fastest way to do this. And that's another reason to have you know profilers in hand as you do this, because 
they don't care. They look at the actual time mm. of the execution. And so, you know, these are the facts that you know to rely on. And so if one of your assumptions change or is broken along the way, it doesn't matter because you're profiling it. Yeah, so to a degree you are handing out something that you used to do yourself into good enough software so they can help you out in your journey as a, as a software developer. In my past, we used to talk a lot about, uh, you know, uh, mind-machine partnership, and it sounds something similar that you have you have a machine helper to helping you out over those humps that you you, you had a habit of taking care of yourself. The the third unusual position, um, I think you call it yourself dry. Don't repeat yourself. I I haven't con- come across uh, that acronym before, which probably tells me tells tells volumes about my maturity as a developer, but. You also uh, you write in many cases code duplication is bad because it encourages divergence. But in a particular case in this book, it makes me feel as if you. Oh, this is my interpretation. It makes me feel as if you advocated um, code divergence. So talk to me more about about your position on don't repeat yourself principle. Don't repeat yourself is a very interesting topic because it has people are very very tied to it and, and very happy to it. And that's, and that's part of why I think it's dangerous. It's very, very effective. It's become sort of a a target, a hobby of, of sorts to or a game to sort of hit down these don't repeat yourself. How much reuse can I get, right? These two lines look like each other. Can I merge them to become one? And sometimes that just obscures the code. And sometimes, you know, it's it's not what you want. So really what I'm advocating for is the making an active decision whether you'd like some code to have the option of diverging or whether you'd like to, to converge. So in a lot of cases, you do want it to converge, probably most cases. But if we forget completely that there are occasions for not uh, doing uh, you know, unification of code, then we're, we're equally bad off. You know? So what I'm mostly advocating for is don't do... Um, unification of code at any cost like consider when it's right and and consider what it means when you have duplication in the code code i i like to call it unexploited structure there is some structure there you can see it as a human why is is it not visible to the compiler is it because it's incidental and should never be joined or is it because it is intentional and should actually be joined so I also have a whole chapter on how to unify code. It's not like I don't do it at all. I do it a lot. I just also want people to consider it might be accidental and it might hurt you to unify code. Another case entirely that I see in the industry is when people share some common code across two different teams and then nobody takes responsibility of that shared code because it's it's shared, you know. And changing it becomes this whole thing of processes where you need to communicate with the other team and there's a lot of overhead and then nobody does it and it's full of errors. But like it's code like that that can fall between teams is also another bad reason for for um, unifying code. In that case, I would rather have both teams just maintain their own copy of the shared code so that they both have responsibility and have the agility that they need. Yeah, in the in the economics, I think there's a very well-known term called the tragedy of commons, and that has probably uh, brought itself into the into the IT space as well. But it's it's that if you have a shared pasture, 
and you have and you have two farms and they both have their own cows and they lead their own cows to the shared pasture then eventually you will have a problem because either nobody's taking care of the pasture or that it it never grows grass because because it's nobody's problem in a way um i i could imagine that uh, that that discussion you just had uh, sort of uh, slightly relates to refactoring patterns or rules that you really have to take a conscious decision you have to look for the right approach so when you there is the term that Um, that you use refactoring patterns or refactoring rules do you have some some favorites that you would advocate people to start with or something that you have found yourself uh, useful well so those are really two different questions to start with i recommend the simpler ones and that are going to give you a lot of um a lot of easy wins up front so i i always recommend the first pattern to people would be extract method it's probably also the most used in the industry I expect because it's simple, it can't really go wrong. It's integrated in most IDEs, so you can just ask the computer to do it. And that means, again, that can also be a way to be safe refactoring even when you don't have tests is when you have a machine do it for you, right? So mm. that that's sort of the first thing I would recommend. My personal favorite, favorite though, is uh, is, the, is in the beginning of, uh, of chapter four of, of the book where uh, I replace a type code, an enum as it is, with uh, with classes and I just that's so powerful and that's so cool and it's it's like it blew, blew my mind the first time I saw that in uh, in Martin Fowler's book and I was like that is important this is when it's really happening because we're changing something that's like low level um, data to being higher level control that we can do stuff with we can pass these objects around and we can we can do so many cool things with that so that's really the my favorite uh, refactoring pattern mm. yeah i remember uh, far too many years ago i don't even know if it counts as a refactoring pattern but one was the passing references instead of passing data which really goes back to back to our performance conversation that was one but one more recent and i i surprisingly stumbled upon that in one uh, one article in medium talking about refactoring patterns which was instead of uh, building functions that rely on the certain order of arguments passed to the function you should be passing function a uh, let's say a named map so basically a hash map in Perl, or you would have a map enclosure where uh, where the arguments are in the named map and it doesn't matter which order they are because because the function can always use the right argument using its its uh, keyword so Uh, surprising enough uh, it's like almost everybody can relate to that but but not probably not everyone thinks it as a refactoring pattern well it also sounds it sounds a little bit iffy to me because you're you're actually so another big point of the book is relying on the compiler and using the compiler as the tool that it is and it's it's a power tool it's super powerful it can check mm. so many things for you and stuff and moving stuff into a hash map um will sort of hide the types or like the order from the compiler, you know. It it mm -hmm. it sort of opens you up to having reference not found or, you know, stuff like that, which is which is dangerous in itself. Uh, I much recommend if you have so many arguments that it makes sense to do that, you should probably break up the work into smaller chunks and then bundle those together in objects that are a lot smaller. And by using objects that way, 
you can actually guarantee that the right argument goes in the right position always, right? By having yeah. argument three class uh, that can only go in argument three. You have to do it the right way. Otherwise, the compiler simply won't allow you to do it. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm learning and interesting that we are now here, we are creating a dialogue between two uh, subject matter experts of refactoring, one advocating one way and another one having a preference over the other way, which probably tells that there's no right way to go. There is just, uh, there's just the fact that you have to be aware of what you are doing and consider the, the sort of uh, the consider the side effects of whatever uh, whatever route you have chosen. Yeah, and it all, but it all, my my point of view also of course requires that there is a compiler. It doesn't work in untyped languages like Python or um, mm. Perl, right? So yeah. yeah, yeah. It depends also on the language. Yeah, have you come across um, misconceptions about refactoring? Uh, I have. I've, uh, especially when I was younger and uh, not uh, as experienced as I am now, I, I came across the thing a lot that uh, refactoring was gold plating in some sort, you know, where it was, we don't have time for doing gold plated code. We just need to deliver features. We need to do work instead. And I sort of, I wasn't uh, at the time uh, experienced enough to contest that. But the fact of the matter is it's it's not necessarily gold plating. Of course, there is a point at which refactoring isn't economically viable anymore. But it's I think it's way beyond what most people consider, you know, time to stop. Um I also can it's a it's also an interesting discussion I've had whether code can be perfect. Right? Can you can you refactor a program so much that it's perfect? And um I like to say that it can only be perfect for a direction. It can be perfect for the next change because you need to know where the code is heading in order for it to to make sense to refactor it towards that. I would never refactor a code that doesn't need to change, right? Code that never changes, just leave it as it is. There's no point. Um, that would be wasted time. So whenever I need to do a change, I know how the code should look to make that change easy. And that's actually a quote from, from Ken Beck that's wonderful for how to start refactoring in like a big legacy code. He says, first, make the change easy, then make the easy change. Mm. Right? And I really like that because it shows that, you know, it's, it's about knowing where you're going. Otherwise, refactoring isn't really that valuable. But in, in parts that change a lot, right, parts that are very... Uh, very hot for changes, then I would definitely refactor that a lot to make all of it sort of very movable. Yeah, that, I can find many, many parables outside software development in that in that phrase. Like it, it's so easy. It's so easy to imagine in what other scenarios other than software development and refactoring you could apply that. So uh, I think there's something there's something universal in in that statement. Yeah. Um, so, so how do you then, considering that it almost sounds to me that whoever is is on the journey of maintaining an application lifecycle, they have to do constant prioritization of whether I should invest my time right now for new features or making sure that whenever I I want to sort of pay down technical debt, I'm kind of I'm preparing it to be easy or I'm actually doing it. So how do you prioritize refactoring then in, in the daily development? So I think it should actually 
not so much be a prioritization. Well, I mean, it should be a weighing or a balancing because you should do it uh, all the time. After implementing a feature, before delivering something, you need to refactor it so that it's not, um, you know, putting a, an, an obstacle for the rest of the team. Like, you need to actually go in and make sure the code is in a state that you'd be happy to continue working with unless you're working in a end-of-life sort of or doing, well, yeah, end-of-life mostly. I, I can see that there are opportunities where you need to roll out some hotfix very quickly to get service back or something. And in that case, it's completely fair to postpone refactoring until the system is working again. But then it will be the very next thing for me to do would be to go in and actually fix it up so that it's not being an obstacle in the future. Like putting in these obstacles, even even from an, a completely different perspective, where if you want to do estimates in a code base, if you want to know how long a change will take to make, the far the biggest uh, constraint on that is how messy is the code in which you're going to implement that change. If it's super messy, then it's going to take so much longer than if it's super clean. But the problem is when we do estimates, usually we don't look at the context. We look at the, the issue that needs to be solved, and then we categorize based on that. But that's usually not the biggest uh, time factor. The biggest time factor is the environment. And so if you want to do clean estimates, you also need to refactor a lot, to have the code base be in at least sort of a consistent way. Right, you need to have it be uniformly messy, at least. Um, part of that sounds to me like a, let's say, a, a teamwork. Like a lot of stuff that we have discussed up until now uh, can be applied, even though if you are like a, a individual soldier uh, plowing away. But the the bigger the software project, the more likely it is that the software is a is a product of a team. So how do you, so let let let's then extrapolate that to a question like how how do you approach refactoring in a team? So um, that's also a super interesting topic, like to discuss, especially with teams. I think what's most important is uh, going in the same direction, because if two people have different uh, preconceptions of what refactoring is or should be, then they might end up you know going in circles refactoring back and forth between their two styles. And then um, that's not that's neither useful nor I mean it's wasting a lot of uh, a lot of time and money. So the first step is to agree on a standard or agree on a quality constraint or something like that. And then you know how to get there. And then developing um, what's it called Rule, your own set of rules that will sort of support that. And the the reason I like rules is that it enables onboarding of of new employees very easily because rules are super easy to apply. Whereas we can perhaps agree on some smells, but again, smells might leave a lot to interpretation. So we might again disagree on that. So I think being very concrete and very explicit is important for refactoring as a team. Right. Now you said rules and you could argue that um, sometimes it's easier to automate stuff than make rules happen. So uh, when you think back to the definition of DevOps, for instance, it, it, according to some definition, it's it's the comms, where the A stands for automation. So why, why should we not automate the rules then? Um, so 
it might seem like the rules uh, are very easy to automate, and they and they probably are. But the point is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, they're they're actually a learning tool. Most of all, they're there to teach you and to force you to learn refactorings and to give you a sense of how good code feels like, and then also how it sort of uh, doesn't when it doesn't work. That's just as important. It's not necessarily what perfect software should look like. It's more, it's more a, a, a tool for going down the path and staying on the path until you you've learned sort of what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. And it was important for me that I gave people something that they could they could go out and use tomorrow. They don't need to sit down and do reflections. They don't need to do all of these things. You can read a rule like the five lines. Then you can go look at production code and say. I can determine instantly whether this fits in that rule or not, right? And so automating, the, the, the rules are not perfect for all software. They're, they're useful for learning is what I like to say. Right. Okay, so when, when you are, when you have matured, then you can apply the rules instead of just blindly following them, which probably... And you can break them, yeah. Yeah, well, more importantly that. You've referred to one book... Uh, which you said it changed your your world. So as we are uh, nearing to the end of this conversation, um, what about the other sort of sphere of uh, refactoring books? How does your book relate to the existing books and the sort of what vacuum does it fill? So um, there is, of course, Martin Farrell's refactoring book, which was the, the one I was recommended and which was my first exposure to refactoring. And I thought that was just amazing. You know, it, it was a a new world looking at code through those eyes. And um, and then I, I, I was very motivated to learn more about, you know, uh, how to do code right. So I, I also am very inspired by um, Robert C. Martin's clean code books, um, all of them in the series, basically. And I've uh, read Refactoring to Patterns and, and all of these other books on refactoring. The, the thing that struck me about most of them is that when I recommended them to people, they were not they were not super easily digestible. You know, there was a lot of knowledge and a lot of content in them, but it also took some um, some reflecting and some understanding. It took time to read them. They're not particularly easy books. So what I what I wanted to do was to make refactoring more accessible, to make a book that you can read before those that will sort of ease you into it a little bit more by giving you some of the practical uh, perspectives, by giving you some good advice on how to do things and, you know, by putting it in a, a bit of a bigger example or context than, than maybe some of the other books do. Good. How do people find you? So if people have other questions, uh, if they want to learn more about you and, and your works. Um, I am on Twitter and I also have a blog uh, on Medium and I have a stream actually where people can come and watch me write code or do refactoring or ask questions. All of them are uh, at the Dr. Lambda. Okay, so we'll put the handles in the show notes so then people who listen to this, um, they'll be able to to follow you uh, more closely. And now a listener might ask, uh, how could they take advantage of your skills? Um, as a matter of fact, the, the book is out there and, uh, and uh, we are able to provide a few books uh, free of charge so that's a that's the first thing that the people who are listening to this and they think i really really need to look into that book send 
an email to marketing at ethico.com and uh, and we will uh, take the f- the first few ones and uh, we will send you a copy and then for others who were not that snappy and so quick in writing emails then uh, we're going to put a discount code out there so so everyone who really feels like it they can take a very very affordable look at that and finally of course your your personal skills um, you offer uh, technical agile coaching and technical consulting through Eficode. So if you are really, really lucky, then then probably they get to work with you. Yeah, I love going out, doing uh, mob programming and talking about refactoring, testing with people. Wonderful. Uh, Christian, it was it was a pleasure talking with you. Um, and thank you for your time. And I really appreciate it. Very, very interesting discussion. And uh, good luck finishing the book for for being printed out there so people can get ink on their hands when they read your book physically. Yes, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed discussing with Christian. As we as we talked, we are happy to hand out a few digital copies of the book for you, dear listeners. So send an email to marketing at com, and the first few lucky winners will have a copy for themselves. Also, if you follow Ethicode at social media... We are going to put out a discount code for the book. We'd like to thank Christian's publisher, Manning Publications, for the generosity. Well, that's all for now. I'll talk to you later. But in the meanwhile, remember to make change easy and make an easy change.